Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, for this week's episode, we have a very special guest. So we have retired Major Greg Hill on the call tonight. So hello, sir. Thank you for being here. Hey, it's an honor to, uh, to be here with you all. All right. Well, so just sort of to uh, give a little bit of background information on uh, Major Hill here, he began his military career in 1986, attending both CMR and RMC. Following his graduation from RMC, he earned his military wings on the CT-114 Tudor in Moose Jaw in 1992. After earning his wings, he began flying on the CC-130 Hercules in search and rescue roles at first, and then later working in the tactical airlift role for a large part of his career. During his time in the RCAF, he served with 424, 436, 426, and 429 squadrons in Trenton, Ontario. Throughout his service, he was involved in several deployments around the world, including three tours in Afghanistan in the latter part of his career. All right, so yeah, you definitely have a very distinguished career and you have a lot of experience with the C-130. So we were actually talking about this aircraft uh, a while back, uh, we did an episode on the Vietnam War, and we were talking about how the uh, Americans sort of used it in a few different roles there. So, awesome, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we've uh, actually prepared uh, six questions here for you, and that should uh, take up most of our time tonight. Now, without further ado, let's just jump right into this. So first and foremost, what path did you take to get into the RCAF? Because we've sort of talked about... Um, going to RMC, we briefly touched on that, but what was the process mainly? Like, what did it really look like? Well, not to go back to, uh, you know, I was born in 1968. I won't go back that far, but uh, my aviation dream was born when I was 13. My father was an army officer and we were stationed over in Brussels, Belgium at the time. And they had a, an airlift that would go around various bases that we had in Europe at the time. Uh, one of which was LAR, where they had the the magical Canex where you could go and buy all sorts of Canadian things. So they had a, a, a flight that would uh, pick us up outside of Brussels. And so a kindly old C-130 captain invited young 13-year-old Greg Hill into the into the flight deck. And that pretty much birthed my aviation dream, which fast forward many years later for myself, you know, post 9-11, we can't have anybody in the flight deck, which... Uh, which kind of sucks to be honest, because it's nice to get other faces up there and have, have somebody to talk to other than the other pilot. But uh, that was where my dream started. And then I was pretty much uh, obsessed with it from that time forward. And I remember actually when I was 13, wondering what I could do at that age uh, to, to get myself to the career I wanted. And certainly part of it, as I'm sure you all know, is working incredibly hard at your academics and keeping the doors as wide open as possible. But for me, something quantifiable was memorizing the phonetic alphabet. So that was uh, one of the first things I did, right? Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. And uh, I don't remember how long it takes to took me. I, I'd like to say not very long, but I don't recall. But that was where it started. And then uh, eventually I got myself into military college. And between the, between the years was really the part focused on uh, your aviation career. So uh, between first and second year, I think it was, I went off to Portage and flew the Musketeer. And then between a, the second and third year, I think was when we did survival training. So outside of Edmonton, building little hoochies and uh, eating dandelions and other things and out on the West Coast, uh, 
parasailing into the water and, and different sort of sea survival. So that was kind of uh, the, the initial gen, you know, the genesis of my career at that point. All right. Thank you, sir. Yeah, definitely. Um, next question we got here. What made you want to become a C-130 pilot specifically? Um, I probably, some of that answer probably uh, comes out of where I first started with it, right? Um, I remember, you know, back in that era, 1986, uh, I think it was that year that the movie Top Gun came out. So the vast majority of guys that showed up at, uh, in Moose Jaw wanted to be fighter pilots, right? And and we all kind of chuckle. I'm looking uh, at your faces here. And as soon as I say Top Gun, everybody smiles, right? Because it's, back then it was kind of, it was pretty cool and taken seriously. And now it's quite a joke, right? It's become, uh, it's become something that's, that's laughed at a little bit. But but I proudly can say that I showed up in Moose Jaw wanting to fly, fly the big lumbering uh, Hercules. Um, and I think part of it when I went through my flight training, like we did aerobatics and all sorts of things. And man, we went, we did aerobatics and I was like, how much longer till this is over? I just didn't enjoy it, right? Like uh, I enjoyed formation flying, um, but honestly, you know, I'll sound maybe like a bit of a loser to the fighter guys, I suppose, but I'd rather fly a, a very carefully, precisely flown ILS approach, uh, you know, an instrument approach than do aerobatics all day long. And, and some of that's just your personality, right? Uh, enjoying the precision of it and just the quantifiable nature of, of being able to see what you're, you know, we were involved in all sorts of airlifts uh, over the course of my career. And, uh, you know, seeing the beams and bullets being brought to the Army guys, I've always had an amazing amount of respect uh, for the army guys, you know, they're the ones outside the, outside the line, you know, was a phrase that kind of became popularized in Afghanistan uh, and what those guys were taking on in terms of uh, bringing some real courage to the battlefield. Uh, I, I was uh, honored to, uh, to serve, uh, to serve alongside of them. So I think that uh, that's probably the best answer I can give you for, uh, for where the C-130 fits in for me. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So our next question we have for you, for you are what sorts of roles do the C-130s and the Royal Canadian Air Force perform? Well, it's the HERC, the trusty HERC, as we call it. Um, it's got a pretty wide um, spectrum. You know, it's I started out my career flying search and rescue here in Trenton. The coasts, west coast, east coast, those guys are, are busier just by nature of you know, part of really the search and rescue area that they uh, that they cover so that's one thing that they do is search and rescue although they're in the process right now of replacing um replacing that aircraft with with a more modern platform to conduct search and rescue it's not it's not exactly ideal given the speeds that it flies at uh, it's incredibly versatile but something a little bit smaller like the buffalo which unbelievably is still flying to this uh, to this day um out on the west coast in comox but that's one and then uh, air to air refueling, uh, 435 squadron in Winnipeg does air to air. Uh, they got a boom that hangs out underneath the wings and, and, uh, resupplies our, uh, fighters, uh, on the longer haul type stuff. And then, uh, in my view, saving the, uh, the best to, to the last is the tactical airlift, uh, role. And that's done, um, out of, out of Trenton, uh, with the squadron there. So, uh, and, and the nature of that, over the course of its history in Canada, we used it as a global airlifter, which really isn't what it's designed for, in part because it's a prop aircraft and it, it's lumbering and it's, it takes a long time to get there, right? And, and it's, you're always trading off payload for fuel. 
So if you're trying to go a long distance, well, you're going to have to carry more fuel or, or stop multiple times along the way, which limits the amount of payload that you can put in, right? So what it's really meant for is in-theater tactical airlift. So in Afghanistan, that's primarily what we used it for. We had a bit of a longer leg to get ourselves into Afghanistan because we were stationed uh, in the Middle East. So it took the better part of three hours to get up there. Uh, but ideally, you get you know something like a C-17, which we've got now. Once it showed up, it really increased our versatility. Or the A310, they would bring bulk loads in, and then the trusty Herc would, uh, our tactical crews would get in there, and then you'd fly tactical profiles. So depending on what you're, if you, it's a small arms threat or a surface terror missile threat, you'd hit a certain point where you felt the threat was credible. You'd call the combat entry check, you'd don your flak vest and your helmet, and you'd get yourself typically down low and fast, and, and that's you know the best way to defend with a, something that's as large as a as a herc is to get yourself low and, and fast that's uh you know whether it's a small arms threat or a, or a missile threat that's one of the best means which is a lot of fun for the guy in the left seat which was me but if you read any book about afghanistan there's all, almost always a paragraph or two dedicated to the herc from an army guy who talks about how much he absolutely hated the ride into afghanistan because you're sitting in the back of a tin can with no windows, yanking and banking, and it's hot, and the air conditioning isn't working. And um, so that's a long answer to your question. Those are the, the primary roles that we use the Herc for. Thank you, sir. So yeah, it actually does a lot more than we realized. I only really ever thought of it as doing that uh, transportation. I never really considered the uh, search and rescue or the air-to-air -air refueling that it does. Yeah. All right, so uh, our next question is, what is the training program like for C-130 pilots and how is it different from the uh, training programs of some of the other pilots in the RCAF? Yeah, in terms of comparison, because that's actually the only aircraft I ever flew aside from my initial um, training. So I can't really speak firsthand. I know the fighter course, uh, and to be honest with you, I know it because of a discovery program that you may or may not have seen. They they went through some of the training that uh, that some of our F-18 pilots did. If you can ever find it, it's it's very well done. Um, so it's a lot more, I think it's a longer course. I, I won't attach a time limit to it because I'll get it wrong. But, uh, and actually it's, uh, I did my training on the Hurricane 94, which is a few years ago. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was two months, uh, but it's very, very, very thorough. Um, you know, I'll compare it to the airline world, which is where I ended up eventually. And in, in the, at the airline, you get your actual license in the simulator. We've got very modern CAT-D simulators. Well, with the Herc, you, everything you did, we did, we had simulators for sure, but you were filling, you know, putting a bunch of gas in the airplane and then you're beating the circuit doing touch and goes. Well, you're not going to take an E320 in Toronto at Pearson and do touch and goes for all sorts of practical reasons, right? Um, it's, it's not cost effective for the airline who wants to make money being one of the main ones, never mind the airspace issues, right? But in the military, it's, uh, it's a lot of it's pretty old school. I would say probably now, uh, you know, I'm sounding a little bit old because I actually don't know over the last five, six years how much that's changed. Some of my, some of my friends and colleagues that I flew with are in that training world now. I'm just not, uh, I'm not quite up to speed with it. I expect they're probably doing more in the simulator. Um, but back then, the one point I will make is the systems knowledge was... I don't want to say everything, but it was huge. Like you had to know everything. And this was back in the old days with overheads. Like, you know, I don't know if you guys are probably too young to know what overheads are, but it's, 
it's the super, super, super boring version of a PowerPoint lecture, right? So it's slapping an acetate on and then showing you all sorts of bleed air systems. And, and that was because you could find yourself uh, in the middle of Africa, standing on a ladder with a flight engineer, deciding whether or not you were going to take off with a part broken. And there was at the airline, there's, there's basically manuals that tell you whether or not you can go. And uh, in our world, it was all down to the aircraft captain and you better make the right decision. There was a lot resting on your shoulders. You absolutely had to understand what happened with the hydraulic system, what every valve did, what every light and switch did, right? So in the modern airline world, it's quite a bit different. You know, it's, things are broken and you understand the basics of the systems for sure, but you're typically at a comfortable gate with a coffee and the, you know, the maintenance guys come on board and, and they're the ones that really deal with the nitty gritty of it. Plus so much is uh, electronic nowadays too, right? Back then it was much more analog and uh, old fashioned, I guess would be one phrase. So. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah. Cause I think that's one thing a lot of people really don't think about nowadays. A lot of pilots, they'll have uh, mechanics at the airline who will come and fix the aircraft for them, or they can just look it up in their manual. But yeah, back then, or with the uh, air force, you really couldn't do that. You had to understand the parts of the aircraft yourself. Yeah, and we had great, you know, the flight engineers, man, I had so much respect for them. Uh, as a young ca aircraft captain, one of the worst things you could possibly do is get your flight engineer annoyed at you. And I saw a few guys do it. You know, they'd get overly arrogant and act like they're the big, tough uh, aircraft captain, and, and they wouldn't listen to their flight engineer. And, man, that guy um, knew the aircraft inside and out, and you wanted him on your side, and you wanted to defer to his expertise. At the end of the day, you know, you live and die by you're the guy that's signing the book, and, and it's on your shoulders. Uh, but you better be willing to listen because typically these guys have been around a long time and a lot longer than you as a young aircraft captain, right? So. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah. So next question we got here, what is your most interesting or exciting story from your time in the RCAF? Um, Yeah, I thought about this, obviously, in, in advance. I mean, the one comes to mind that, that stands out as certainly the most honorable time in my career. I think the most one of the most challenging days I had was um, I was a major when I left. So I had a whole bunch of paperwork and an email inbox, which really sucked that I had to deal with. And I'd spend much of the day doing that. And I do a fair bit of flying, too. But at the very end of a long day, uh, there was kind of a, an emergency call to round up a crew to go and uh, evacuate some natives from a community up in northern Ontario. And we did our best to find anybody who could go pronto pronto. Um, and that turned out to be me. So I'd already been there for quite some time. And it was the absolute definition of a dark and stormy night when it comes to aviation. So the wind was 90 degrees to the runway right on the limits. You got the pencil out making sure it's, you know, it's within the aircraft limits and it's not well lit and it was howling and rainy. And so we did a blow by uh, of the runway just to make sure it was clear. And I remember as we went by, I thought, man, we are at a serious angle going by this. Uh, this is going to be a lot of cross controlling. And it was a short runway as well. So the margin for error was very limited. Um, anyway, we got it in there. And it, like I said, it was it was pretty much max crosswind. And I remember once we got it slowed down and started taxiing off, my, my legs were shaking, not from fear, but from the amount of, you know, Jimmy and back and forth with the rudder uh, pedals just to keep things uh, lined up. So we couldn't shut down. Um, we just loaded everybody up, ERO engines running on and offload. And we did that all night long. 
So it was incredibly fatiguing because uh, I'd been there for quite a while already. We were bringing them down to Moosonee, as many as we could fit in the airplane back and forth. So it was very rewarding. I remember I was walking out from the terminal uh, with my airplane roaring away and blowing all sorts of, uh, you know, jet fuel in my face and holding the hand of a little girl as I walked her out to the airplane. And I, I just remember the satisfaction of that moment. And it was one of those moments that I'd encourage you all to take in the course of your flying careers is stopping for a moment and just stepping outside your body sometimes and thinking, this is actually really cool, or this is really rewarding, right? Because we get so involved in trying to achieve our goals that we sometimes forget the beauty of the moments that we're living, right? Uh, and so I, I actually paused in that moment. I thought, man, this is, this is actually pretty cool. I'm pretty tired, but this is pretty cool. And that's a good segue into the greatest honor of my career, which was in 2006, in May of 2006. One of the last flights that I did before I left to go to the airline, um, I brought Nicola Goddard, one of our uh, artillery officers that was killed in Afghanistan. I brought her body uh, back, first leg home from uh, from Kandahar. So we went in there before sunrise and stood on the ramp with, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand troops standing in silence under the Afghan sunrise um, with the bagpipes playing and her platoon members who had only hours before been in a vicious firefight uh, in which she valiantly lost her life, um, carrying her casket into the back of my aircraft, and then they, you know, breaking down, and they had enormous respect for her. And then one of her platoon members sat on uh, on the bunk on our flight back to the Middle East. Uh, so it was one of those moments where the fragility of life really uh, resonated. You know, your stupid little things like signing the weight and balance, right? And her casket was in the freight department. Right? And you just think, man, that's, uh, it really hit home with me. Uh, but it's, you know, there is no greater honor than to, uh, to be, you know, part of that crew that, that brings her home to her, uh, to her family. So that certainly stands out, uh, stands out for me. Those, those two of, of a bunch of others, I guess. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I cannot imagine not only the honor, but like the psychological impact that would have on you that would probably be something that would be really hard to do to well i think yeah for sure and i i sorry to cut you off jacket uh I, I think what resonates with me most about that is the fact that as canadians i think we've been we've we've been lulled into a sleepy complacency and we don't really understand the price of freedom uh and that really struck home with me and you know i went back to camp and our, our camp it was a transition camp and all the army guys passed through it as well so they reaped the benefits of it but I went back to camp and, and that very night somebody was in the chow hall complaining about the flavors of ice cream. Uh, and I just, it infuriated me because I'm thinking, you have no idea, right? Like these guys, these army guys, what they're living through, right? So it, it really it was a stark contrast that really resonated with me. All right. Well, thank you, sir. And it, oh, it, it is true living in a cushy first, cushy, living in a cushy first world nation kind of forget what actual hardship is yeah no for sure it's a it's a great point to to bring up yeah i agree so our last question for you tonight is if you had the opportunity to fly any other aircraft what aircraft would it be yeah i had to you sort of get immersed in in uh you know learning how to be as uh professionally adept as you possibly can with the aircraft you're flying right and so you don't look too far outside your your world uh and a220 was uh, what i was flying at air canada 
Um, you know, so that was what I was focused on. But if I step back and think about it, I, you know, I go back to the the SR seventy one Blackbird, and and it's just, you know, it's it's just there's a little bit of old school to it, and it's just it's such a wickedly cool looking machine, right? Like it's some of it's just the, the you know the I don't know the male psyche of uh, wanting to be, you know, it's like the black stallion type uh, type aircraft, you know. Three point something mock, I think, flying at eighty five thousand feet. Like, who wouldn't want to be sitting up there looking at the curvature of the Earth and telling people you've, you know, you've been roaring around at, at uh, three times the speed of sound all day? It's, uh, but I, you know, the other side of it, of course, is I'm sure it's a brutal course, and the, the physiological demands would be enormous, and and all these other things. You know, it's I say that about my fighter pilot friends. Uh, you know, they're, they're living in either Cold Lake or Bagotville, which are maybe the best uh, places to live. Sorry to anybody from Cold Lake or Bagotville. And you've got a brutal course and you put up five, six hours of planning to go up and fly for an hour. Um, and it's pretty cool, but it's, you know, it's not very often you get some of those cool moments where you've got that, you know, canopy open taxiing in as, as the uh, the fighter pilot hero, right? Uh, I, I enjoyed my, uh, my four and five star hotels around the world with the C-130 and some of the cool stuff we got to do. So, All right. Well, thank you, sir. Got to say, SO-71, that would also be my choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right on. No, I got to go read up on it. It's been a long time since I've, uh, I should go see if I can find a documentary maybe. So you've inspired me. Yeah, we do have an episode where we talk about it. Oh, yeah. I'll have to check it out. But yeah, we'll definitely send you a link for that, sir. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on and speaking to us about your uh, time as a C-130 pilot. I think we've definitely learned a lot of very valuable information, not just about the C-130, but about the process to becoming uh, a pilot in the RCAF and um, really about what goes into being in the military. So thank you, sir. Hey, well, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I said this to you earlier, Jack, I'm, I'm very impressed. You guys are... Uh... You guys are super organized. It's uh, it's awesome. You've got you've got this down to a science. So and and it, it thrills me to see young people like yourself really digging into uh, you know responsibility and service and other things. Our nation desperately needs that right now. And I hope you all grow up to be leaders in society that can uh, can bring us to a better place. So it's it's encouraging for me as an older guy to see our young uh, generation stepping up like this. So well done. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great night. You too. You too, sir. And all right. Good night. Is, good night, sir. All right. So with all that said, that is our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Good night. And we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>